Sin Carriers, a West Side Fairy Tale story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Sin Carriers, Tolliver Day dreamed about his own dark impulses on the ride to Lord Belial's mansion, embarrassing himself in the process. Sue, Moira, Vasily, and Tolliver made their introductions with the beautiful, if unsettling, Lord Belial before entering his home. Vasily then found himself lost in a palace of crystal and dream, where he was forced to confront many unsettling memories to continue. Soon after, he was reunited with Moira only to find a young woman acting oddly and partaking in an unspeakable meal. In town, Wicklish tried to locate a restroom and instead stumbled upon a horrific atrocity of Garvey's doing. He soon found himself sandwiched between the whores in Garvey's appropriated basement and a mob of villagers with their hearts set on violence. Thanks to his own cunning and ruthlessness, he managed to fight his way out, but found things were no less dangerous outside than now burning in. Near the train, the must and the rider have arrived, though the rider found he cannot pursue his target for some time out of respect for Belial's domain. The must, unfettered by such considerations, attacked the town with his horde of reanimated Pinkertons. In Belial's mansion, Vicky arrived to find Belial waiting for him as a sort of test. He made a second sale of a typewriter that day and then joined Belial in the main hall, where he found a large stone statue of Sue run through with swords and daggers. On this episode of Sin Carriers, a young girl named Sulame relives the dream of her emigration to America and the frostbitten nightmare that follows. Tolliver finds himself unwelcome in Belial's home, though a consolation prize has been arranged for him. Miskel Coventry and the other drivers left in town discover the hospitality they've received is anything but, and a lost possession is returned to Gato. What is this insane ball Lord Belial has arranged, and who are these monsters in attendance? Are they related to the shipments of accursed wood traveling east? What sort of life left Sue so badly scarred, both on and beneath her skin? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the 10th episode of Sin Carriers, Feast. Clouds held fast the light of the sun, resting a broad and gentle blueness onto the trees, the snow, and the muddy riverbank around the small rock on which Suleme crouched. She passed this day as she had all the others in this new camp, tossing scarlet leaves into the waters and watching them vanish into the whitecaps at the edge of the little river's trickling waterfall. Its steady, aimless noise was her only comfort in this place. This so-called America, which her father had once preached like the word of God and now sped on in secret. It was always cold and wet here, much like Europe had been, though with a ferocity unlike anything Suleme had known in her short life. England's snows had been as dark and crusty and foul-smelling as the awful people that lived there. Liverpool, it was called where Abu Jafar had led her father and their family and the entire greater clan. It was a brief stop that had fully halved their number, particularly the women and the young men, 
who had found drink and easy money in the docks and alleys and shops of that odd town. Suleme had her first real winter there. Winters had gotten plenty cold and even snowy sometimes in the Levant, though the snow had been thin and often followed by rain that washed it away before people could sully it. In England, it never seemed to stop snowing and raining and sleeting after a while, but there were always places to hide from the weather. Everybody was packed in so tightly it was often a welcome relief to travel into the cold on errands. In America, the winter was like a curse from God himself. The wind blew and never stopped blowing in your face when you walked. The air ate through her clan's heaviest clothing and burned their skin. One of the boys her age had even lost his fingertips after his hand wrappings had gotten too wet. Beyond the cold, however, was the snow. It fell for days, for weeks, and even when they didn't see it falling, it fell. In secret, like a lie, so that walking any odd place without attention to your steps could suddenly drop you your own height or more beneath the surface. Suleme's own father had vanished into a drift their second week in the mountains and had to be dug out before he suffocated. He'd been horribly embarrassed and struck Suleme's younger brother, Ali, when the boy had made a joke about the incident. It was the snow that had trapped them up on this great, silent cliff above the valleys below. Falling so thickly, every sensible path to the bottom of the mountain seemed blocked. The snow over their camp gathered slowly enough it didn't collapse their simple canvas tents, and every morning the men would wake and shovel away the night's load. Now great serpentine walls had risen throughout the camp, snaking between the tents and around the ring of wagons where they gathered for prayer every night. Suleme didn't go to the prayers, of course. She remained outside this rising ring of snow with her mother and the other women, listening to the wisdom of her father and their clan leader, Abu Jafra, in silence. She remarked that, if father was so wise, then how did they wind up stuck on this mountain? Her mother had slapped her in the mouth, pointed at her, and then burst into tears and hugged her daughter. Suleme had never been reprimanded before, much less struck, and was so taken aback she merely hugged her weeping mother and stroked the woman's headscarf in confusion. When she looked up from her mother's heaving shoulder, she saw many of the other women were holding wrists over their mouths and crying as well. It was something she thought about here in her spot beside the river, watching the beautiful maple leaves vanish over the waterfall. Great, black herds of beasts wandered the flat plains beyond and beneath the cliff, grazing through snow that seemed not so thick as that on the mountain. One of the men had grown hungry enough to climb down to hunt the creatures, but had never come back, and now people only dreamed of what they might taste like. Suleme, her mother called. The girl sighed and popped up to her feet after tossing her last maple leaf into the stream. Then she tucked stray strands of hair beneath her headscarf and called back to her mother. The woman told her to hurry back for God's sake and stop playing beside that infernal river. Walls of snow rose so high around the curving dugouts of their makeshift village her father couldn't see over them. As such, she could barely hear her mother even though they were only a stone's throw apart. Suleme could still imagine the woman standing with her hands on her hips, bending toward the blank white face of the wall and shouting into it as though it were Suleme herself. The thought of this made Suleme laugh, 
and she hopped down from her rock and promptly slid, lost her footing, and smacked her head painfully against jagged stone. Her body tried to make her scream, but the noise got caught in her throat. Deeper, actually, just in the top of her chest. It hurt so badly, scared her so badly, she began slapping the ground in a panic. Heavy snow and the wrappings on her hand drank up the sound like so much water. Suleme! Her mother called. The voice was faint. The girl tried to shout to her mother, to beg for help, but her voice was trapped in her chest. Feet pressed into the snow beside her face. Mother, she tried to say, mouthing the words without air to solidify them. Mother, she tried to scream when she saw the person, creature, looking down at her. It was haggard and small. Wizened would be the word if she knew it. Its smile broke the rough planes of its face the way trees split in the cold. Fingers, cold and hard as the stones frozen to the riverbank, traced the contours of her forehead, her cheek, and then her throat. Suleme! Her mother called. Her own name was soft to her ears, muddled. The creature placed its hand on her breastbone and pressed so hard the girl thought her chest would break. Then air, sweet, cold air, filled Suleme's lungs and her body roared back to life. Rasping, coughing, she swung her hands wildly at the creature and pushed herself away, eyes closed. When she finally caught her breath, she opened her eyes to see nothing but the indent of snow where she'd fallen. That and a speck of red buried in the snow. Not a leaf, she thought. Suleme stumbled closer, holding her chest and wheezing. Watery eyes and a persistent dizziness made it hard to see. Her mother had either stopped calling or she couldn't hear the woman anymore. In any case, it all seemed somehow less important than this odd thing jutting from the snow where she'd fallen. A picture of what looked like a crying moon. She took it and felt the thing's hand on her chest again, though she stood alone. Certain curiosities unfolded around Moira as she walked through Mr. Belial's wonderful home. A measure of fear made her heart race as she took it all in. A voice of caution easily drowned by this rushing onslaught of decadence. Tapestries so rich and full they looked alive, and then you realized they were. What first appeared to be figures frozen in a silvery dance was revealed to be a screen of threaded crystal woven floor to ceiling. Staircases that rose into the pulsing scarlet overhead, in fact, descended in ways that felt almost alarming. Several times she stumbled, only to feel Mr. Belial's warm hand holding her upright. Well, we seem to have lost your escort, he said with a chuckle, raising his hand to a distant wall and then resting his palm against it. Moira discovered a great sheet of flawless quartz had risen, or possibly always been, between her and Sue. The red in the woman's dress beat like a poisonous interference against the calming indigo of Mr. Belial's home. Sue seemed unaware and unconcerned by Moira's absence, and then she realized she could see herself still walking ahead of the young woman, 
arm entwined with Mr. Belial. Her father was there, too, walking around panicked about something, as usual. How is this possible? Moira asked. She felt giddy, alarmingly childish, in fact. I live amongst memories, not all of them real, Mr. Belial said. All of which I can access as I wish, some of which I intend to share with you. Moira felt her stomach lurch as they shifted downward, into darkness far from the pulsing light in the ceiling. Mr. Belial felt larger in this space, more substantial, though she couldn't see him. A hand, purple and thickly fingered, opened before her, and what rose from its palm shone like a sun encased in black diamond. It sparkled over her face, moved in her eyes. Bonds of crystal and light shifted, warped, and became beams of twisted black wood. Light and shapes floated between Moira's face and a wall of dense muscle. The chest of a man bigger than any she'd ever seen. Moira reached to the light without thinking, though it strayed up and away from her fingers. Higher, higher still, always growing in size and brightness. Her eyes, blind now to everything but the light, widened. What is it? she asked. An egg. Belial replied in a soft voice. The walls shuddered away around them, collapsing as gently as fallen curtains to reveal a great banquet hall rich with the smell of food. Every assembled eye rose to the ceiling, apprehensive and waiting. Some applauded this entrance. Others didn't. Tolliver patted his head dry and cursed Belial as softly as he could. Bullied. He was being bullied, and not in a fun sort of way, not in any brotherly way, though even growing up what constituted brotherly misaffection between him and Gulliver was hardly a kindness. Thoughts of leather and little bits of metal between his teeth jolted the darker spaces of his memory, and Tolliver grunted and threw his handkerchief at his feet. It made a puddle of itself spreading over the floor like a spilled drink. Tolliver blinked, sighed, and tried to shake away whatever deception Belial's domain was foisting on him. I suppose the apple hasn't fallen quite so far as I first imagined, Belial said, as if summoned. Perhaps he had been. Tolliver rubbed his hands together and gave the man an apologetic nod. Belial had eyes only for Tolliver's wet, disincorporated handkerchief. Pick that up. Sorry, Mr. Belial, Tolliver mumbled, feeling faint when he tried to scrape the handkerchief off the ground. His throat felt fattened, like a man suffering an allergic reaction. Possibly it was that. He had spent a great deal of time in close proximity to the must, after all and God alone knew what that might do to a man. I've been meaning to speak with you. I don't really care, Tolliver, Belial said. My daughter is enjoying herself, mightily, I might add. 
Belial inspected his nails and adjusted his feet away from Tolliver as the man fell to his knees, hand buried in the handkerchief. He didn't notice the expression of contemptuous curiosity on Belial's face, but it wouldn't have surprised him. It's sad. A sad thing, I should say, that you won't be joining us all upstairs. Mr. Belial, Tolliver protested. His voice was soft in his chest. He blinked and realized he couldn't see the handkerchief anymore. Tolliver took a deep breath and tried to force himself to stand, but accomplished nothing. Wobbling with his hands on his knees, he looked to Belial. Please. It's not to say you aren't welcome here, Belial said. Or, more importantly, that your family name can't still get you places without concern for your... reputation. It's simply that you're not really holding yourself together right now. And the comfort and, well, safety of my guests is paramount. Tolliver forced himself to glare at Belial, causing the taller man to smile. It's really nothing personal, Tolliver. Belial bent down so their faces were close. Inky, purple smoke pulsed and glowed in his irises. Tolliver said nothing, could say nothing. His father's name was nothing more than a handful of dirt if he upset Belial but he maintained his piteous, hateful stare. Belial sighed and stood up, turning his head as if something concerning had just happened out of sight. Cool, almost frigid air blew over Tolliver and he saw the bridge entrance to Belial's home had appeared beside him. My associates left something for you outside, Belial said. A mutual friend of ours still has a great deal of misplaced faith in you, Tolliver. You should really consider yourself lucky they want to see you grow. Belial walked toward the joyous commotion inside his home, and Tolliver felt himself being shuttled outside. Belial appeared around him in crystalline fractals, eyes angry and pointed in every direction but his. Then the night air was truly overtop him, cool and dry and filled with the sounds of screaming and gunfire. The sense of smoke and blood. And sweat. Tolliver felt his body move without his urging. A spinal reaction beyond his control that forced him to crawl forward like some great, sloppy baby. It was the sweat. The musk of a young woman. And this time it was real. She was real. Young and dark-haired, both on her head and below her pelvis along her arms and legs. She seemed wild and rare, and perhaps she would have behaved as such if she were awake, but she wasn't. Flawless, unmarred skin lay before his eyes, every thin hair, every bead of sweat rising and fattening and drying beneath the red moonlight. Nothing seemed amiss about her save the inconstant fluttering of her eyelids and a line of bloody spittle running from the corner of her mouth. Miss... Tolliver whispered, not looking at her face. Whomever had left her here had left her naked and vulnerable. Surely she had a father, a mother, just like his own daughter. She was terribly young to be out here, naked and unconscious. Tolliver meant to ask her, but instead he lowered his jowls over her breasts 
and took a deep breath. Intoxicating scents filled him, sent his flesh shuddering with need. Thick effluvia ratcheted in his nose, but did nothing to impede his sense of smell. Rather, it enhanced it. It drank her in and kept her inside of him. Inside of him. Tolliver looked down at her chest and saw the drop there. The most forbidden. Resting on the flat hollow between her breasts. He belched, swooned, and fell over her. Miskol tongued the hole where his bad tooth had been and spat into the tobacco tin. What came out was no less black than Chaw's bit, but Miskol didn't chew. He sighed and looked again to the back stairs, where Garvey and then Wickless had both disappeared off to. Whoring, most likely, the both of them, to which he would admit to some jealousy. The pulled tooth hurt him more now than when it had been in his head, and between that and the light fever he was suffering through... He couldn't maintain himself in a sexual way to save his life. Tooth bothering you? Don asked. His eyes were whiskey-crossed, but his concern was legitimate. Both men were in agreement that each other were all they had for talk and company for the rest of this trip. Wickless was awful. Garby was worse. The backenders were all freaks, and Coakley was a goddamned idiot. That left them with Culver Penbrook, wounded, missing, and probably dead, Ricky Tulane, deathly boring and Greg Cutting almost violently introverted with Garvey and Wickless now gone that left Miskel, Don and the latter two at a table with a preponderance of bottles and a fathomless void of Don conversation fuck I wish I had some cards Miskel thought yeah he replied to Don something was going on in the rear hallway now a bunch of shuffling feet and murmuring between people he tongued the hole in his gums. As they were sitting, he was closest to the front door, with Don on his right and Ricky Tulane on his left. Ricky had fallen asleep with his chin on his chest. Cutting had his back to the commotion in the hall, but seemed concerned with something else. What's going on here? Folks were cautiously stepping into the bar and making a deal of effort to not look at Miskel's table. Like most everybody else he'd seen in this town... They were all a bunch of old-timers, real dried-out farm types that carried themselves younger than they seemed. He nodded in that direction for Don to take a look, and the man did. His fingers drummed on the table. Any y'all got warrants folks might know about? He hissed. Not this far west, Miskel muttered in reply. Hey now, Cutting said. Miskel hushed him, and the man gave him a shocked look seeming to think something over for a moment. Cutting glared and picked up the bottle of liquor they'd been sharing, holding it like a knife. Half its contents jumped and jostled as Cutting held it out over the table. I'm warning you. Warning you what? Miskel said, glaring at the man. Cutting cocked his arm back and a gun went off, twice, in quick succession. Everybody froze and three more gunshots followed. Miskel saw a puff of dust burst from the ceiling over the crowd of people and heard something like wet meat getting hammer-smacked. 
chips of bone and blood burst out the base of Ricky Tulane's skull. The man's eyes went wide awake just as cutting through the bottle over Miskel's head. It popped and Miskel felt the silvery sting of a glass bottle shard bury itself in his shoulder. Somebody screamed behind him and Ricky Tulane fell to the floor. The man looked directly in his eyes, a last scared, confused moment before dying. Miskel, you don't got you! Don shouted, jumping up. Miskel tried to follow, but he was stuck in place. Somebody was pressing into his shoulder over the glass. He glared at Cutting, not knowing exactly what was happening. The crowd in the hallway was no less confused. Gunfire had thrown everything into chaos. What'd you do to me, Cutting? Miskel shouted. The pain was extraordinary now and he couldn't imagine what the little man had hit with that goddamn bottle to break it so bad. When he looked at his shoulder, he could see his own bloody reflection looking back at him. Cutting gave him a grave look and then sprinted out the front door, disappearing into the night. He didn't do nothing, Miskel, Don said between grunts. Something awful, the glass shard, came up out of Miskel's shoulder and he found he could breathe again, but only barely. An old woman was running at him with a meat hook. The feeling of seeing her like that was so extraordinary he couldn't do much about it. Then Don pivoted around him and fought with the woman, overpowered her, buried a full-blown cleaver in her skull up to its back edge. Miskel saw Brain pushing out around the blade like rising dough. Get up, buddy, come on! Don shouted. Come on! The folks in the hallway had seen what Don did, and about half of them thus made up their minds to give chase, either out the front door after cutting or toward Don and Miskel. All of them had something sharp or hard in their hands, working folks' tools, hammers, knives, spanners. Miskel let Don get him on his feet, and then they were running up the stairs. Where the hell did that little rat cutting run off to? Miskel hissed. He could barely breathe. He was smart, Don said. I don't know what's going on, but he saved you, buddy. You ought to speak more nicely of him. Stab me with that bottle, Miskel said. His legs buckled as Don tried to get him to stand on his own for a second. Then Don, screaming with effort, pushed the grandfather clock at the top of the stairs down onto the folks chasing him. People crumpled under the impact as the clock shot to the first floor like a canoe down a rapid. Three of their pursuers dropped kerosene lanterns that shattered and caught each other on fire, splattering liquid flame onto the walls and people beneath them. Don looked down at what he'd done in amazement for just a second before handing Miskel the big, bloody-ass knife he'd killed the woman with. Hands free, Don then dragged Miskel to his feet and Buddy carried him down the hall. Some old man got you with that, Don said pointing to the knife in between rattling doorknobs. Miskel saw his reflection staring back at him in the blade, just the same as when he'd been sitting. The knife was finished so the blood didn't stick to it much, but all the same it colored his face in streaks of red. Mostly got the high back of that chair instead of your head, on account of cutting hitting him with that bottle. Don hauled Miskel through the second floor, finding room after room locked and quickly running out of options in the windowless hallway. Behind them, a constant and rising chorus of shouts was gaining ground on the stairs. They'd be on Don and Miskel in seconds once they overcame the swamp of burning bodies Don had left behind. 
How's my shoulder look, Don? Miskel asked. Don met his eyes, mouth set in a grim fashion. You're bleeding, Miskel, he said. Can you move your arm? Miskel managed to raise his right hand up to his waist, bending his elbow, but that was it. Don hissed through his teeth and began kicking the last door in the line, which was also locked. It splintered after a few hard, curse-filled blows. Miskel couldn't do anything but help keep an eye on the stairs. Firelight colored the walls a deep orange, in which danced the shadows of their pursuers. What on earth did we do to him? Miskel muttered. Don't care, Don said through gritted teeth. The door splintered more but hung on at the bolt, bending inward like a bow. A woman, singed black across her face and still a fire blouse and bonnet, burst up through the smoke and collapsed against the nearby wall at an unnatural angle. Miskel saw her neck was broken, but some internal force urged her body to keep moving. A blue eye shifted toward him in the blackened ruin of her face. A man's hand holding a sickle wrapped at the top of the banister. They're coming, Dawn, Miskel said in a quiet voice. Dawn looked that way just a moment and then kicked the door fully off its hinges, shouting when he fell into the room along with it. The man at the top of the stairs turned the corner and Miskel saw all of him was aflame, save that one clean hand in his boots. His eyes were black pits inside a skull wreathed in fire. He raised a hand toward them, collapsed, and his flaming compatriots stormed the hall. Lord God, I am a sinner and I will sin again, Miskel whispered under his breath, following Don into the room and now holding his injured arm. The shock was wearing off, and only now is he remotely aware of how badly he'd been hurt. Please forgive me my trespasses and deliver me from evil. Miskel watched Don throw hunks of something boxy, dresser drawers maybe, through the room's windows. The folks behind him beat down a fury on the hallway floorboards. For yours is the glory and the honor and the word, he whispered, turning his attention to the figures on the bed. They had skin like wet paper, run over with sores and other weeping lesions. What life remained in them beat at this film, pulsed and shuddered and writhed beneath it. There were six of them. No larger than children and all with the same odd purple bags hanging off their throats. These looked like great, swollen kidneys. It might have been for all miscalled him. One of the things looked at him. Eyes pale, blind, and pleading. It opened its mouth, and Miskel saw the otherwise human jaw split cleanly in half. Ropes of gel strung between the bones. Misk! Don shouted. Miskel broke his attentions on the thing and let Don help him through the window, where he almost immediately lost his balance, rolled, and fell into the smoke, the screams, and the gunfire outside the inn. Mildover fired, missed, cycled the rifle, and fired again, this time striking the thing in the side of the head. Its skull burst into yellow slop that bubbled and smoked where it landed. The thing stumbled and rolled over the ground several yards before struggling to its feet and swinging blindly in the direction of Mildover and the boy. Elam shot it a second time, separating its leg at the hip. 
Whatever these things were made of, it was far less substantial than human flesh. The thing shivered, went still, and then burst like a rotten tomato. Its leavings made a boiling pit that burned down into the mud and gravel. Mildover took a steadying breath and reloaded. They're just the same as those other fellas, Elam said. His rifle barrel swept slowly back and forth as he followed the path of the two fleeing drivers both ahead of and behind them. The men, one badly wounded, had cleared the flaming remnants of the bar and were now hobbling building to building trying to get back to the train. Elam watched over them like a silent guardian angel, rarely missing his shots. Pinkerton's from the last station, Mildover said, nodding. I'm not sure what accounts for that. I've never seen anything like this. That's a lie, he thought to himself. You always lie to their kind, so why stop now? Brigadier General Benson grimly said in the dark confines of Mildover's own mind. The obtrusive thought was so lucid it made him grit his teeth. He forced himself back into the moment. How are you on ammunition? He asked the boy. Getting low. Elam replied. The boy focused on something Mildover couldn't see, clearly preparing to shoot and then pausing. I think I'll be out well before all this calms down. Mildover watched a group of townspeople, perhaps a dozen in all, rush just three of the gray-suited things. In seconds, only maybe seven of the folk were alive and only two left uninjured. The beasts flung themselves amongst the pack, dragging limbs and skulls and whole bodies into their mouths with complete abandon. Nothing so much as ash returned from those maws. Fighting those things up close would be a death sentence with just him and the boy. We should move well ahead of when we have to, the priest said, rolling onto his side and taking a drink from his water flask. It ran empty and he tucked it away. I don't plan on fighting those things hand to hand. A scrawny thing in rags with a mouth that opened into its neck chewed an old man to death as Mildover watched. The old man stabbed and stabbed at the creature. After a few blows, the foul yellow effluvia pouring from the wound melted the old man's chest down to the spine. The creature deflated and then it and the old man were gone in the same molten slurry. Fine by me. Look, right there, Elam said. Mildover tried to triangulate Elam's target by the angle of the rifle, but failed and said as much. Three blocks ahead, top of that building where it looks like the water tower is sitting on the right side of the roof. Yeah, okay, Mildover said, finding the broad red building Elam was talking about. Wind kicked up over his right shoulder, and he felt the heat from the burning inn wash over him. They'd set up just a few rooftops down from the department store thinking another Pinkerton ambush was the worst they could expect. There was no preparing for this. Wait, I, I see it. What the... Shadows of some massive thing bloomed over top of the building, creeping onto the roof and dragging the mass of something along with it. From this distance, in such paltry light, there was no real telling what it was other than it wasn't human best Mildover could figure was some sort of giant swamp reptile, though God alone knew how such a thing could get up there. Even as he watched, it answered that question, slinking down the side of the building hand over hand. It had somebody in its mouth, Elam said in a grim voice. I'm 
I'm sure I must be dreaming. Yorn, the priest said. You can see that far? No, Elam replied. He set his rifle down and rubbed his eyes, staying that way for a long moment. Mildover pushed down a sudden urge to slap the boy and tell him to get his head back on his shoulders. In that moment, he was in Montana again, watching the natives ride amongst their buffalo through a looking glass. He snapped out of it and almost threw his own rifle off the rooftop. As it was, he had to nearly leap off the gable to catch it. What the hell was that? Elam asked. Slipped, Mildover said. You were saying... I saw it earlier, while I was watching those other two. Elam said, I thought I was seeing things, or I thought it was one of the yellow things, but I guess it wasn't. It followed our boys a ways, and then it set up like it was going to get them. Just hints of it, you know. Shapes and shadows in the alley. Then it grabbed up some local with a hatchet in his hand and seemed satisfied enough with that, so I didn't shoot it. Elam took a breath. Maybe, maybe I should have. No, Mildover said, a touch too forcefully. Elam gave him a look. No, it's better not to shoot until you're sure what you're killing. He gathered himself and stood, suddenly no longer able to look the boy in the face. You think like that and you get to where you're shooting first and finding reasons later. He cleared the ground around them and moved to the standpipe they'd climbed to the roof. Let's go. When he was off the edge, dangling precariously over about three stories of air and trenched up horse cart paths, he looked up to see Elam standing over him. The boy was only a silhouette, square-jawed and tall. The rifle was a line of hot, red-reflected moonlight. If his hair had been longer, the image would have been perfect. You ever do that? Elam asked. Make up reasons after. Mildover flinched. Yes, he replied, turning his eyes to the shadows beneath his feet. He could see nothing past the dented steel of the pipe. But I forgot most of them. Hmm, Elam replied, and Mildover slid away into the dark. Hey! Hey, stop you! Ducky shouted from the relative safety of the train car. He'd made himself as useful as possible, but it was now plainly obvious that he was just dandelion fluff in a garden of thorns. Whatever was happening on the other side of all this steel, he'd needed to stay out of it if he didn't want to get killed, or worse. He'd shot down two of the things running out the car, but they'd shaken off the bullets and popped up back into a dead sprint. Headless in one case and one-armed in the other, directly at him. Then Gatto had appeared and all that remained of them was some awful yellow grease that burned the ground like lye. Are you talking to me? The man Ducky was trying to stop asked. He wore a dark, bedraggled suit and looked about two years past his bedtime. Exhaustion dragged at his every word, but his body remained energetic enough to pull apart the security car literally pull it apart, ripping away thin plates of steel and stripping out whole bolts with his bare fingers. There was a stink about him as he worked, 
and it wasn't a stretch to say it was the same as came from the yellow things that had run past the car like dogs. Step back or I'll shoot, Ducky said. The setup of the security car made Ducky work for the angle needed to level the rifle at the guy's head, which he in turn treated as more of an irritation than a threat. Somebody started whistling in the distance, and this odd man rolled his eyes and turned to Ducky. He attempted a smile that twisted his features into a salesman's rictus grin. I'm working to my own purposes, boy, he said. But I'll tell you what. If you open that train car for me, I'll let you just walk away out into the desert. How does that? Ducky shot him in the neck. Half surprised himself that he did so. It stopped the man mid-sentence and made him blink a few times, but that was it. He tried to cough, failed, and then dug into the bullet wound with a free finger and pushed something up through the bottom of his mouth. Ducky watched as he turned and spit the smoking hunk of bullet onto the ground. Holy shit, Ducky whispered. Gato! He cycled the rifle and shot the man again, cursing when the guy grabbed the barrel and pulled hard enough to smack Ducky's face against the metal window frame. Ducky managed to keep hold of the rifle when he fell back into the car. You know, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, so I was trying to be careful, the man said. Ducky gathered himself just in time to see the fuzzy outlines of a skull glowing in the metal wall beneath the table on which he'd just been kneeling. It grew in intensity and dimension, the steel glowing orange and then white as it bubbled into the compartment. Then the metal split like an orange peel, and the man's dripping skull pushed into the car. I will melt this thing to slag before I let some moon cricket shoot me and get away with it. Ducky tried to do just that, but hissed instead and dropped the rifle. What he hadn't noticed when he'd fallen back was the missing front end of the gun. It had been melted in half midway up the barrel, and a dollop of the yellow grease had dripped onto his shin and burned him through his clothes. The skull opened its mouth to say something else, but let out a long, wet sigh instead. Torrents of glowing yellow grease dripped from his mouth to the floor, melted through it, and the skull slid back out through the hole it had created. You ruined the side of my train car, Gato said, holding the dripping, smoking man at arm's length by the long, heavy knife embedded in the back of the skull. The man flailed, trying to slather Gatto in the grease, but Gatto tossed him aside and rolled out of the way. He caught what he couldn't dodge on his poncho and watched it burn. And my poncho! These grease on the wind will blow through the hole and my clothes. Why are you so rude? The man stumbled to his knees and broke the handle of Gatto's knife off at the base of the skull, vomiting until the blade melted and he coughed up the slab. From the neck up, the man glowed like a dollop of hot glass dangling from a pipette. He hissed and wiped the dark, cloudy flecks of steel and his own neon vomit off his jaw, turning to Gato. You fucking... He started to say. Gato whipped a knife off his belt and threw the air so fast Ducky only saw a flash before it disappeared up to the hilt in the man's empty eye sockets. The skull rocked back and then the man fell on his side. Ducky watched as the knife began to smoke, deform, and then fell away from the bone. <laughs>
rude, Gato said, walking over and picking up the hilt. You ruin everything? That's your trick? He flipped the bladeless handle into the air the way any normal person might flip a coin. When he caught it, he gleaned whatever divination this act had provided and then tossed the worthless metal into the desert like a skipping stone. I bet you taste like shit. Gato pushed aside his poncho and pulled free the only knife he had that bore any ornamentation. It was like a bowie knife, but more crude and flat, with a turquoise inlaid handle. This he flipped carefully, a gentle roll of the hands. This steel was not for parlor tricks. Gato! Ducky said. The tall man seemed intent on the hissing skull at his feet, but there was something emerging from the dust in the Badlands. A man riding a horse and whistling something long and sharp pierced the center of Gato's poncho and then the wall of the security car. It passed just inches from Ducky's leg and the young man shouted and fell to the ground from the surprise of it. He realized he could barely hear. The impact had been so loud it nearly deafened him. Ducky pushed himself to his feet and saw Gato standing and stretching, unharmed. The javelin thing had only succeeded in ripping his poncho off and knocking him down in the process. Even as this realization came and went, Ducky saw the thin, whitish spear fade like a memory from the wall. He heard Gato's poncho slump to the ground outside. Rude, 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 Gato said. Without the poncho... Ducky saw the man had incredibly broad shoulders and a thin waist covered over in scabbards and crude knives. Gato checked the blade he'd taken out with his thumb and then dropped it back in its sheath on his hip. All night and all the day since I began this journey, people coming out of nowhere, disturbing my sleep, ruining my things, I cannot accept this. Read you might have to, the man on the horse said. Ducky froze as he drew closer. The horse itself was a horror show, looking freshly dead but somehow still moving at a healthy clip. Its eyes were mad with pain. Bad as it looked, the thing riding it was worse. Ostensibly a man, its clothes were crudely stitched and grease-blackened leather. Further inspection showed the worn shapes of eyes and mouths stitched closed. And the man's face wasn't his face at all but a dry, dead-skinned mask made from some other man's flesh. You know who I am. Jesus Christ in heaven, Ducky said, scooting lower in his seat but keeping his eyes at the window. His curiosity and terror seemed to be at war with each other. Cats are kings wherever they may walk, my friend, Gatto said bending slightly at the waist in a mock bow and sliding a knife free from one of his chest scabbards. It is uncommon folk such as yourself to offer an introduction. He smiled and bowed, obscuring himself with the cover of his sombrero. Perhaps then I'll let you pet me. The rider reared back on his horse and Gato twisted sideways on his heel, spinning out of his hat so quickly it seemed to float where he had just been while he moved. The rider raised a fist, 
and the javelin Ducky had seen pierce the security car flashed into his hand. He threw it like lightning and burst with sparks as Gato caught it on his knife and diverted it into the ground. Then Gato threw his own blade, and Ducky winced as the rider jerked the horse's face into the blade's path by its mane. The knife buried itself into the base of the dead-looking animal's snout, and it shouted, whinnied, and bucked. The dead skin mask yawned open as the man raised his hand to the javelin. Gato realized what he was doing and grabbed the weapon to keep the man from calling it back. He laughed, and the rider spun his horse, dipped his hand into his saddlebag, and threw a heavy-looking knife at Gato. It caught the tall man off guard, and Ducky couldn't tell if it had struck him or if he'd caught it. Either way, he released the javelin and flopped onto his back. Not that this isn't fine, the rider said. Ducky caught the barest glimpse of the flesh beneath that mask as he spoke and felt his heart fall out of his chest. But... Ducky's ears popped and he sank slowly into his seat, threw it and into the ground. He was sure he was falling. It had that same helpless feeling, but slow. Ducky felt cold metal against his head as he slumped down the wall. Only the rider seemed unaffected. He snorted, gave a last look at the car and Gato, and then rode off. Whatever had happened came and went in seconds and Ducky felt his mind resume the normal pace of time. He pushed himself to his feet and ran outside, finding Gato lying on the ground with his leg crossed over his knee, spinning the bloody blade the man had thrown at him in the moonlight. The glowing skull creature had vanished, though the stench of him remained. He found a real man for me, after all, Gato said as the ground began to shake. Suleime's father watched death approach from the high hill above their camp for days before it arrived. There was no telling why it came, or from where it came, only that it would come and was moving at a pace which would bring it to their camp by the night of Suleime's last morning. She woke to discussions of death as it approached, not in such certain terms, of course, though what's written now is written always and has always been written. But then... Amongst themselves, free of the knowledge of time and the inevitability of the meeting to come, death was spoken of with curiosity, with caution, with hope. Death, without being so defined, was a possibility of rescue and fresh food. Of strong, sturdy men who knew these lands and so could find ways through the ever-present ice that lingered even now that spring had broken in full through the valley below. Men who would not fail them as had her father, Abu Ali. Suleime turned the card over and over in front of her eyes. The paper was so fine and thick it felt almost wooden. Its lacquer was glass smooth beneath her fingers. The somber, crying moon looked balefully at nothing, 
and she wondered why it cried so. Suleme, her mother said. Entering their hut so quickly, Suleme had barely enough time to hide the thing. She smiled sweetly and, though her mother knew something was amiss, not enough evidence remained to warrant further investigation. Are you ready for prayer? The girl nodded and gathered herself off the ground, making sure her woolen robes were properly adjusted and then wrapping her hair and face. Her mother led her into the muddy circle at the center of their long camp. Desertions and sickness had whittled their numbers and their morale, but adherence to the word and their daily practices hadn't waned in the least. It was something Suleme didn't understand, and had learned not to ask about. This unfailing worship and reverence and the little things they did that seemed to accomplish nothing. Her mother and the other women had screamed and called to God to save Um Jafar in the days before her fever had killed her. God had done nothing. Perhaps our God can do nothing, she thought without meaning to. Her first taste of apostasy was so profound she flinched. Unable to shake the feeling, she'd screamed it at the sky. Suleme tucked her chin to her chest and followed her mother to the place prepared for the women, where they knelt and listened from the other side of a hanging goatskin as her father spoke about the possibilities that death might bring. He mentioned food and cautioned against begging. He mentioned also advice and assistance, for which he was most hopeful. Last of all, he mentioned the possibility of danger, on which the crowd did not dwell but which rang in their ears, long after the men rose and did a quiet, somber dervish in the mud. Death arrived in the last hours of daylight and stopped just short of their camp. Far enough, Suleme's clan could count their number but not see their faces. They wore American clothes, stilted angular collars and shirts and boots of military men. Women beside her mother whispered about soldiers and tried to remember what color the ones who killed and enslaved the Africans wore. Gray, it was decided. Or black. These men are dressed in gray. Um Hakim whispered. Suleme was not so sure, though it was possible. Um Hakim spoke in Arabic. Dramadi, she had said. Dressed in gray. Dressed in ashes. Suleme's father, Abu Ali, gripped his oldest son, Ali, by his shoulders and said a great many things to him as the boy stood shaking between him and the women. Her brother was no bigger than her, and a crybaby to boot, but Suleme knew her father was telling the boy to take care of the women, of his sister and mother. Then Abu Ali left his people to go meet death. His English was the best of all of them. He'd forced himself to learn and practiced diligently, reading from a handful of little books so he could speak for his people. He'd crossed half the distance to the men and managed the words, Hello, friends, when they shot him in the face. He fell, and that was the last Suleme ever saw of him. Many things happened. Her mother dragged her away into the tent and then back out of it, cursing to herself loudly because she didn't know what to do. Another woman had swept up her brother Ali and run with him. The men on horses hadn't stopped shooting after killing her father, and many of the women were dead along with the men. Everybody who lingered behind, smartly, knowing death better for some reason than the others, stormed over the berms and were running for their lives through the hills. Some leapt from the cliff just as others tried to climb it. Suleiman never found out what happened to them. 
The black chunks of the amoebic killing party that had come for them broke off to hunt survivors. Most incredibly, Suleme saw one man stop running as though he'd suddenly remembered something important. A bullet struck him in the abdomen and he touched the blood pouring out of his body with a curious hand. Then he turned to the approaching men and washed his hands and face with his own blood. He began to pray on the filthy earth and they shot him as he finished the Shahada, and he lay on his face in the mud and bled. Suleme's mother screamed and dragged her into the mud, her arms so tight Suleme could barely breathe. She screamed again and again as though somebody were lashing her. All of this disturbed her scarf, which fell away from a face so like Suleme's own. Dark eyes, once so fierce and loving and intent, dulled as Suleme watched. They fixed on some distant point beyond Suleme's shoulder. Looking for something, Suleme thought. Bobby, of course. Suleme fixed her mother's scarf back over her face and struggled out of the woman's arms. Horses thundered past her carrying with them a cacophony of whoops and wails and gunshots. She pushed herself out of the mud and thought she felt her mother pulling at her, but the woman's fingers were just caught in Suleme's scarf. She unwrapped it carefully and set the cloth in her mother's slack hands. The camp had mutated into something new. Fire rose all around her, burning everything she could see. Everything they had brought... Even the sad scrap of goatskin they used as a partition during prayer. Haze filled the spaces between. A great swamp of blood and filth filled with the members of her clan that had died in the first volleys. Some of the children lay in a group together and she pulled their faces out of the mud. Ali was the first. His little skull cracked open from the cheek and through his eye socket. His eye lay deflated against the side of his nose. She rolled him onto his back and then continued with the others, thinking it would be rude to leave them like that. Then she took the headscarf off the second one, Salma, who was about six and had a crush on her brother, and used it to cover the faces of all three. The third was probably Hakim, but his face was gone, so there was no telling. What now, mother? Suleme asked. She turned but couldn't find her mother amongst the other dead bodies. A woman screamed for help and Sue jumped, looking around for an adult. Finding none, she ventured deeper into the smoke to find Um Hakim laying on her back beneath a massive American. His pallid bottom was hanging out of his trousers and jiggling like pond scum between Um Hakim's legs as she tried to fight him off. When she saw Suleme looking at her, she stopped fighting the man and turned away to wrap her face. Corporal! A man shouted riding up through the smoke. Suleme hid behind a row of clothes smoldering on their hanging line for what good it did her. The man on top of Um Hakim jumped up, some odd, stickish thing bouncing around between his legs. Suleme realized what was happening and felt her stomach turn. Major General, sir, this corporal said, saluting. The man atop the horse leveled his pistol and fired into the man's face without warning. The bullet did as intended, and Um Hakim screamed and tried to push herself away from the dead man. The Major General shot Um Hakim next, and she writhed on the ground for several seconds until she finally died. Miscegenation, the man on the horse said. Shouted, really, craning his head around as though he were surrounded by an attentive crowd. 
He flicked his pistol at Um Hakim's body and a man stepped out of the haze to kneel beside her. He flipped the woman over and tore away her headscarf, pulling out a worn-looking knife and using it to cut into her scalp. Suleime felt her entire body shaking. She was standing just feet from these men, and they hadn't seen her. Great cause is not diminished by a paltry setback such as that afforded to us by those traitors in Richmond. You understand that, Kane? The man asked. The young man cutting into Um Hakim looked up and nodded. His eyes were empty and distant. His uniform looked cobbled together out of many different fabrics. The stitch work rough and unpracticed. Whatever purpose it had originally served had long since passed. Now it was some new, confused thing. These northern endeavors will soon come to a close, boy, the Major General said. There's a sentiment that we've accomplished all we can with these savages, and I suppose I am fit to agree. These aren't even engine as far as I can tell. Some species of mongrel, but of the Mediterranean variety, I think. Arab, or the like. In any case, take all you can and let the others know I won't tolerate any more bestiality. I don't care how long we've been on the hill. The man turned to inspect the slaughter and sucked his teeth, clicking them loudly enough Suleiman could hear. Then he turned and their eyes met. She ran. We got a live one, Corporal! The Major General shouted, rearing his horse and chasing Suleiman to the burn. He cornered her with a deft maneuver of his horse and she turned to run the other direction. But he did the same trapping her again and again and laughing all the while. He had a blonde man's face and color, all pale and blue and gold. She broke into tears as she stumbled breathless into a puddle of bloody slush. Now, now, keep running. Sir, Kane protested, approaching with his pistol drawn. The Major General raised a hand to stop the other man and drew his saber. The short bit of horsemanship had left him breathless, but invigorated. He and Suleiman looked at each other. Come on now, he said. She tried to stand. She'd lost her sandal at some point and the ground sucked the heat from her toes. Come on. Suleiman turned and ran and he stormed up behind her. Something smacked into the back of her head and she stumbled, her entire body going numb. Blood dripped from the back of her head, covering her face and dripping into the blackened snow beneath her. She could taste it. The man dismounted and tossed the reins to the dog following him around. The man named Corporal Kane. Good Lord, they breed these animals sturdy across the pond. The Major General said. You know, when I was a boy, a very young boy... I ran down property for a host of families in Richmond. My father's business. One day to be mine, but it was stolen from me. He paused and pointed his bloody saber at Suleime. I used to have a mean on. Guess I'm getting old. Suleime tried to turn and he kicked her in the mid-back so she landed face down in the mud. What followed next was the worst pain she'd ever felt. Fire going straight through her back and out her stomach. Pathways of blood broke open inside her. I'm dying, she thought. It seemed unfair. 
The major general pulled her head up by her hair and she screamed as the sword he'd pinned her to the ground with cut deeper into her. She tried slapping at his hands, but he just mushed her face into the mud until she went slack and then pulled her up again. This time she saw the steel square of a man's shaving razor unfolding by her forehead. She pretended to be dead, so he wouldn't hurt her anymore. Maybe she was dead. Dead like mother. Dead like Ali. Something red stirred inside her, hotter than blood. She thought of her father walking out to these men, walking up into these mountains. All of his stupid promises led to this, to her mother crying, to Ali's eye hanging out. She had to do everything he said, and all he said led to this moment. For some reason, she could only see the shape of him standing before these men and not his face. No matter how much she tried, he was lost to her. Suleime shouted and scratched at the fingers holding her as hard as she could, shredding off a chunk of skin on the back of his hand. He slapped her for her trouble and stomped on her back several times, finally tearing the sword free and striking her with it repeatedly. He raised it over her neck and thought for a while, watching her shiver as she quietly bled to death. Finally, he wiped his sword off on her back and spit on the back of her head. Lay there and bleed then, he said, crouching down beside her to speak in a lower voice. Listen for the wolves come sundown. They know you're here. She heard him walk away and rejoin the corporal. When the sounds of the men and the horses vanished back into the countryside, only the steady crackling of the dying fires remained. Then, as promised, the sounds of wolves. They came with the rising moon, which shone thin and blue as the card still tucked inside her muddy clothes. Suleme listened as they began to chew through the bones and flesh of what could only be Um Hakim. She wondered if they would enjoy the taste of her when they were through, and what she might offer them to allow her to die before they began to eat her. She had tried to push herself off her stomach, but her arms wouldn't move. Above her, the moon was a cool blue sickle amongst the black clouds. Again, I find you, being still and breathless. An old woman's voice said, The wolves paused, inspected this creature, and resumed feeding. Flesh enough for all tonight, and none needed share their meat. You are so close to death. Perhaps you are friends. The woman spoke in Suleme's own tongue, in Arabic, though it was heavily accented. Eastern, somehow, from beyond the Mediterranean. She could understand, in any case, if not answer. What the men had said over her, over Um Hakim, remained a mystery. Some words she understood, others she didn't. Do you want to die? I can help you, the woman said. Her feet appeared in the mud before Suleme. Even in the dark, she could see the woman's body was like a doll made from dried and twisted skin. 
an unholy fetish allowed to walk by dark magic. Suleme closed her eyes and clenched her teeth. Suleme cried out, a pathetic, body-shaking noise. Despite her frailty, she felt something hot burning inside her, urging her on. Shadows danced over the creature's face as it smiled. No! Suleme croaked. You are about to die. Do you know that? The creature asked. Second. You have just seconds to live. But I can save you. What will you give me? What do you want? Suleme asked. It took a long time for her to cough out the words. For you to hold this, the woman said, flipping up a card for Suleme to see. A great, raging moon of scarlet stared back at her. Suleme's teeth gritted against each other. Hold this and take your vengeance. Never hesitate. That's all I want. Let it drive you. Do we have a deal? Yes, Suleme said. The woman smiled and pressed the card into her hand. It felt as hot as skin against her palm. Then the woman pressed her hands onto Suleme's chest and pushed her down, down into the mud, down deeper beneath the earth, into something beyond simple dirt and stone, beneath the blood, into the true dark. Around her the sound of pulse, beating heart, rushing distant life, the smell of closeness, the bitter taste of sickness. An egg. egg. Suleme opened her eyes, experiencing a suffocating tightness, a darkness that made her think she'd been buried. Maybe she had been, but this was something else. A non-place, hot, amniotic and void. A woman floated before her, dressed like a demon in red. All angles and fearsome symmetry. But when their eyes met, the woman was sad. Mother? Suleme thought, recognizing the face looking back at her. No, the woman replied without speaking. They raised their hands to each other and Suleme felt something pass from herself. Her consciousness grew fuzzy. Beyond the red woman lay another figure black as the night sky and bearing four great wings. They opened wide enough to brush the limits of this place. Beyond the red woman, his eyes burned. Suleme gave herself to the red and faded forever into darkness. Vasily tries to make sense of Belial's home, the eccentric ball that's been thrown in the horde of monstrous partygoers. Vicky reunites with Vasily and they find comfort in each other's company, but they may have to make a friend of a dangerous stranger to survive the night. In Sue's past, the young Suleme crawls hand over bloody hand into her new life, thinking only of the men who ended her old ones. 
In town, Cold Wickless sneaks through the shadows, trying his best not to get caught up in the slaughter around him. Deciding to enter a tall building to get his bearings and find a good route to return to the train, he uncovers shocking evidence of what's happened to this town. In Belial's mansion, the festivities are coming to a rapid close that might spell doom for Moira, Vasily, and everybody else within his reach. Will Vasily, Vicky, and the others survive the monstrous entourage gathered in Belial's mansion? What has happened to Sue? And can she recover in time to honor her promise to protect Moira from harm? And if she was to arrive, would Moira even desire that protection? You may find the answers to all these questions and more on episode 11 of Sin Carrier's Dance. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound design, original music, and foley by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein, copyright, WSF Productions, 2023.